Welcome to Revelation Warning, a weekly podcast hosted by Pastor Robert Thibodeau as he interviews prophecy experts from around the world as we discuss current events in relation to Bible prophecy. All of this is to give the world a final Revelation Warning. Now, here is your host with this week's guest, Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Hello everyone everywhere, Pastor Robert Thibodeau here. Welcome to the Revelation Warning Podcast. We are so blessed that you're joining us here today. Hello everyone everywhere, Pastor Robert Thibodeau here. Welcome to the Kingdom Crossroads Podcast today. We're so blessed that you're joining us. You know, the book of the Revelation for some brings ominous warnings and invokes fear. For believers, the opposite is true, or at least it should be for believers, the hope that the soon return of Jesus is about to happen. You know, we can see signs from the book of the Revelation all around us today. We are living in what the Bible depicts as the end days. We are living it right now. As I said, for believers, we should be getting excited. We also need to get busy. I mean, we need to be witnessing like never before. We need to sound the alarm as never before. We need to be warning everyone that the end is near. Now, I wouldn't go as far as to hold up a sign that says that on a city street corner, you know, unless that's what the Lord told you to do. But we should be sharing the gospel and relating it to the end times events in an effort to show the world that the Bible is true and we are about to witness something spectacular. Hey, man, don't shut me down when I'm preaching good. Glory to God. Well, Scott Wright is back with us today. Scott's been teaching us about the different ages of the church and significant things in the Bible and the history that relates to them and what it has to say about them. Now, if you missed any of the preceding episodes where we covered the church ages one through six, go back to the archives, find them, listen to them, because you'll be amazed at the information Scott's been sharing with us thus far. Amen. Scott is helping us to understand each of the different church ages and why they are so significant, especially as we look at the modern-day church age with all the societal problems that we're facing today. Amen. Today, we're going to be looking at the seventh age of the church as depicted in the book of the Revelation. To do this, help me welcome back to the program, Scott Rice. Scott, it is so good to have you back on the program today, brother. I appreciate it. Well, Bob, thanks for having me, and look forward to our uh, fun discussion here on the seventh age of the church. Amen. Well, Give, give us a recap of what we talked about thus far and how it all leads up to our subject matter for today, mainly our relation to the church of, of Laodicea. Well, obviously, we've covered the first six ages of the church, and we're starting to see a pattern emerging, which we will talk about once we finish talking about the seventh age of the church. And through that, God has God had a plan, obviously. He also had an understanding of how human beings would at times corrupt the church and not walk exactly the way that he called us to. Mm -hmm. But even through man's failures, the Holy Spirit would continue to move Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel through those ages, even with a lot of the different corruption and a lot of the different issues that you see in each of those churches. And Jesus predicted that this would happen because Revelation chapter 2 and 3 was given to John in his vision well before we ever even got to the second age of the church. 
It was given during the first age of the church. So we're we're talking about a vision that was given early and Jesus speaking to John. And so he literally predicted what would happen through the seven ages of the church and gave us a picture of that. And quite frankly, it wasn't a pretty picture, but he still showed that the gospel, the message of the gospel will move through each of those ages and will continue until it's time for the end of the, the time of the Gentile is to end. And we'll, we'll talk about that, the end of the Gentile and Jews, Gentiles, all that stuff and how that works. When we talk about the timeline after we're done with the seventh age of the church. Amen. Amen. So let's get started on the seventh age of the church. What kicks it off? What ends the sixth age and what kicks off the seventh age? Well, as we, you and I have already talked about, there were during the eight, it's really the 1830s. And if you go back and you look at the 1830s, the 1830s is a time of mass expansion of technology. And we're not talking about little technologies that would impact us. And, and when I say mass, I'm talking about ability of the ability of transportation and communication that would have impact the masses of people, not just giving more goodies to royalty, but now it was going to literally change the life of people that we would consider the middle class and the lower class. As far as socioeconomically, it would, and it would not just do it here in the United States and in Great Britain, but across the world. And in the 1830s, we're going to see things like the telegraph really come about. That's communication, eventually leading to things like the telephone and all the other things that we see of mass communication today. We're going to see the railroad become a pro- the dominant force in as far as land travel. It's going to replace the covered wagon and the horse. And then eventually, obviously, the car will follow behind and and then eventually airplanes and you know and all that stuff will will come into play down the road. But the railroad is kind of that big one as far as mass transportation, as well as the steamship, because that's going to allow uh, these ships to get across at that time the Atlantic Ocean between the United States and Great Britain and Western Europe at a much faster rate. And that is all going to happen in the 1830s. Most of this will really have taken off just before 1840. And the signature event that really is kind of that highlight event to show the the, the trigger is when Queen Victoria, who is the monarch of the most powerful nation on earth, Great Britain t- is coronated in 1838. That is significant. Why is that? Because Queen Victoria is going to marry Prince Albert, and those two together are going to, and you could really say it's both of them, they are going to do something that hasn't really been done by a monarch. They are going to become the voice of the people in many ways. And you you can go back and, and look at the history, um, the things that they promoted but they're going to speak, uh, Prince Albert's going to speak out against things like slavery and they're going to look at the conditions of the poor and, and all of those things, but also in, and it's kind of all happening together with this emergence of these technologies. And then now you have a monarch that is becoming the voice of the people still being a monarch, but instead of lording over people 
helping people to rise up and live a better standard of living. What this is, is really, you can think of this last age of the church as the age of the individual, because it is going to promote the individual. The other six ages of the church, the great awakening is kind of given that idealism to it. You know, George Whitefield went, goes further than anybody preaching the gospel and leading the movement of the first great awakening. Well, embedded in that philosophy is the individual connection to Christ himself, not the church being that buffer anymore. Well, that end of, that idea of individualism and the individual rising up will give way eventually as the great awakening dies off. The second great awakening dies off. There is a third great awakening, by the way, I want to throw that out there for you historians and you know that, but it didn't have a lot of impact. It was just a little bit of a continuation. So we're not, I don't really pay attention to that one. Like I do the first two, but what you've got to see here is that it's the rise of the individual and that starts to take off in exponential ways in the 1830s. You know, we're going to fight a war 30 years later yeah. over human rights. Right. We're going to yeah. fight a war in World War II about freeing people and human rights. We're going to see more of this come about. We're going to see more social wars fought, not over land, but over people and rights of people. We're going to see monarchs replaced by political systems. Those are going to be some characteristics that really take off. And some of those idealisms are built in the fifth and sixth age of the church and they're trickled down. However, they take off and grab full tilt in the seventh age of the church mm. and become very representative. So things like democracy and communism in the way that we think about it really takes hold in the 1800s in the early 1900s. Amen. So like civil war, world war one, world war two, you're saying that basically revolved around, you know, human rights and things like that. Right. It did. And think about this world war one destroyed a lot of the power of the monarchs. Mm. Yeah. I mean, think about it. It really did it. You know, you, the Austria, Hungary, the Austrian empire, the Ottoman empire, the German empire, yeah. those monarchs are going to basically collapse and, and other monarchs across the globe. Matter of fact, you can go back and look no longer are we after I think 1859, if I'm not mistaken, is the last war fought between two monarchs. Okay. So that's going to end, you know, and, and we're going to see that kind of that slow degree, that slow degrading of the power of the monarchies and world war one, will bring a, an entire new life to people. And all these this. technologies that had advanced, had advanced up to that point, really take hold right after World War I. Let me ask you this, because we, we keep referring back to, you know, England and, you know, uh, that's where the King James Bible and all this stuff came through. When did the power of the monarchy over there change from, you know, the monarchy to parliament? When, when did that power shift happen? Well, it was kind of gradual. I mean, you can start all the way back to the Magna Carta, mm. and that's in the 1200s. Uh, I mean, we were talking about, you know, the human rights and, and the yes. shift from the power, but what was the, I mean, you got, you know, Queen Victoria and all that here. 
was she the one that basically, you know, gave the power to the people? Well, some of that had already been in place, but yes. And, and think about this. And I, and I always say this, it's not totally different in the United States because the way life just was, it's really the end of the agrarian lifestyle is really what does it. I mean, if you think about it, you go back and you look, what was the, how did they keep people under control? It was because most people lived in agrarian lifestyle. And so it was very easy to do so. Once that shifted to more of an urban lifestyle and the, what I call the, the industrial revolution really maturing, which is going to happen in the 1830s, that is going to give way more to the individual because now people have the ability to move from different jobs to different jobs. They can move around. So it almost becomes impossible for governments to control the people like that. You're going to see more rioting, more movements, more revolution in certain, in certain ways, even though some revolutions had happened before nothing like this. These were going to be social revolutions and these social revolutions were going to be things like, we'll see all kinds of things, workers' rights and unionizing and ability of people to move from job to job. I mean, now people, they say can have up to seven to 10 careers and should expect to, you know, yeah. kids that are coming up now. So you can see that change, but this eight in the 1830s is really the big part of that. And I, and, and basically what you're saying is that when did the government give way on that? That had already started happening before, you know, you got the English bill of rights and we have right at the very beginning of the great awakening, the six, the very beginning of the sixth age of the church, England was on the brink of revolution. It already happened in France and it was not pretty. And you can go back and read about the French revolution and all the stuff that was happening. Let them eat cake. Exactly. So, so some of this stuff had already been on the brink of happening. It was just much more difficult then because everything was controlled. The government had so much more handle on populations because everybody just stayed the same. It was an agrarian lifestyle. You know, yeah. an agrarian lifestyle is very different than the urban yeah. lifestyle we live in. Now, for the first time in history, we have over 60% of the world's population living in urban areas or mm. suburban areas. Yeah. So they're not, we're not living agrarian lifestyles right. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's a That's very true. different mindset. I mean, you're sitting in, you're sitting in a major city right now. I'm sitting yeah. in an area that has become a major area. And so we're sitting here electronically talking and hosting exactly. a podcast and people yeah, are able to listen to it. I mean, this is, yeah, we, we take it for granted. Yeah. But quite frankly, this is this is beyond a paradigm shift. I mean, even the yeah. way we think now of church and gatherings of church is changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're seeing those things today and we, we've been watching this happen really over about the last 30 years. Exactly. And it's yeah. been gradual. Now it's not gradual anymore. It is changing in droves. And the way that we think of church, as far as how our society, you know, going to church on Sunday, what does that look, you know, just that type of style. And what's happened is, is we've just gradually moved away from an agrarian lifestyle. And that 
the big catalyst is the start kind of starts in the first or the sixth age the start of the sixth age of the church, but it explodes in the 1830s with the start of the seventh age of the church. Amen. 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 And, and, and you got it. And here's what I believe in. And, and one of the things that people do is when they're looking at when were those trigger events went that happened with the different age of the churches switching is, is they only look at church history, but you really have to look at all of history combined. You have to, you have to see the, the global impact. And so these are the global impacts, the events that would have really shaped how it would change because global, the way things operate social, social and culturally and all those things and how they are global and, and the powers to be and who's controlling those different entities at the time. Those are really the focal points of flipping those ages of the church, because that affects how the church operates Amen. on so many levels and how the gospel is spread. Amen. So the so, start of the seventh age of the church coincided basically with the, the as you said, the shift from the agrarian society to the yep. industrial age coupled in with all the transportation, you know, like we talked about before, you know, being able to go instead of taking three months to go across the ocean, you know, you're doing it in a couple of weeks. Exactly. All that technological advance has ushered in to the seventh church age. Right. Exactly. Think about this. You had, we had, if you go back during the Napoleonic wars and then you van, you fast forward to world war one, and look at the way those wars were fought. There's about a hundred year gap there. Look how far technology came and look how different the societies were in a hundred years. But if you kind of dial back, you can say, Hey, you know, in the 1400s, all the way back to the 800s, life didn't change that much. It wasn't that different. It wasn't that different in the 16 and 1700s. Yeah, it, it was say, a little you, different. Yeah. That, that growth is exponential. At, yeah. I mean, that's what I say. You said the 14, 1500. That's thing. Oh, shoot. Up until, you know, about 1800 itself. I mean, everything was the same. I mean, the, exactly. You know, the populations were getting a little bigger, but as far as, you know, transportation and agriculture and, you know, all that, it, Stay, you know, if your father was a blacksmith, you're probably going to be a blacksmith. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was just that's just how it was. Yeah. Think about this. If and I think we go back around and and I would have to look at my sociological mapping, but there are some charts and a good place to go is Visual Capitalist. They've got a lot of these type of charts. If you go to Visualist Cap, Visual Capitalist, which I have used in my classrooms before to show certain phenomena that have happened. If I'm not mistaken, I think that there were is about in the 1830s, about 2 billion people on earth. Mm-hmm. Okay. In 19. Now think about this. That is all the way back from the time of Noah till then. All right. And then from the 1830s to 1950, we get to 3 billion. Now, 1950 until now, we are now over 8 billion people. Yep. I mean, just and visualize that for a minute. Yep. I mean, just yeah. it's almost hard to swallow. 
Amen. And I don't, I don't think people realize in less than a hundred years, <laughs> we have more than doubled, almost tripled our entire, our population on earth. And part of that we can relate to the industrial age and freeing up. Uh, that's a good example of some people having some extra time on their hands, I guess you could say. And that's probably yeah. as a result of the industrial age, because you didn't have to work from sunset exactly. to sundown. You know? Exactly. And, you know, leisure time, leisure time became a big thing in the roaring twenties. Yeah. Yeah. That because, yeah. and and who affected that Henry Ford with the assembly line. That was industrialization. Now people could work an eight-hour day, make a livable wage, mm -hmm. and still have time. Yeah. Amen. And then you have the automobile, so you can get to and fro a lot quicker from work to home. Yep. And, and I mean, you know, this stuff has not been around that long. Right. Exactly. I mean, television and all that stuff did not really become a major thing until the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I was growing it, up, all we had was black and white TV. We didn't have exactly. TV. And I mean, it's very different. And, yeah. you know, even before that, it was just radio. Exactly. Yeah. So there's some really good stuff on the history channel. You can, mm -hmm. yep. um, you I can look the, at things I like, I love the history channel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, but you can go back, you know, the men who built America, yep. look at the Vanderbilts, the Morgans, the Rockefellers, the car, you know, the Vanderbilts, the Fords of the world, you know, the, Carnegie's you can also there's also other ones that they have brought off of that and you can learn about some of the different industries and their development from that mm -hmm. there'll be the you know there's a thing on the titans which were kind of the next level of capital major capitalists that really you know the captains of industry that really shaped things in the 1900s after Morgan and Rockefeller and them had already dissipated you know had already passed yeah. on so yeah. this was the next generation, basically, of those titans. But then there were also, they have these breakdowns of the different industries, like the TV, the telephone, and all these different things, and how that all came about, and the airplane, and the battles, and the competitions between those big businessmen, those titans, that were fighting for that. But you, But watching that, it's not just about them. It's about watching that technology emerge, and how it completely changed people's lives. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah you know there's a big fight on the ra uh, over the radio and how that was done and how MB that's how nbc came about and yeah you can learn all those histories and i'm not gonna i don't want to get into too much depth and detail mm -hmm. yeah that start that really happens right after the turn of the century and so let's go the back 1900. to the, to the, the you know that age that stuff church. really takes off yeah and, yeah. and that's that's and the beginning of the seventh age so what happens after the beginning where are we at Okay, so here's what here's some significant things. So technology starts advancing, people's lives start moving forward in a much more rapid pace. You know, the civil, the United States Civil War becomes one of the first major industrial wars that we see fought. I mean, we had there were all kinds of representatives and I guess people coming over from Europe to watch this war unfold. And they went back with a couple of understandings. Number one, what an industrial war and the destructiveness of it and the technologies and how it would impact war. And then they also got a sense of uh, the days of thinking we can go in and invade the United States are over unless you just want to be swallowed because they're not only their populations grown, but their technologies are now just as advanced as any European power 
and the United States started to realize that too. And then as those technologies took off right after the civil war, it, in, it spread across the globe. And in 50 years, the United States will become the most dominant nation on earth because of the industrialization. I mean, Yamamoto at the beginning of world war two for between the United beginning of the war between the United States and Japan, which will start in December 7th, 1941, obviously he knew that there had to be a quick end to the war because he understood the United States. He had been here and he said the industrial, he understood that the industrial might of the United States could conquer any world power. And a lot of people hadn't totally embraced that, but these world leaders already knew that by that time they had learned that from the United States civil war, the Spanish American war and in world war one, because in world war one, the United States will enter and the United States will fight for about seven to eight, nine months in that war really fight on the side of the allies. And that's what is going to tip the balance to win world war one for the allies against the central powers. So, and here's, here's some things I want to bring out of that. And I keep talking about world war one and world war two, this industrialization, the industrialization buildup will lead obviously to what will eventually become all these world, these clashes. I mean, unfortunately, when, when man develops weapons, they want to use them. And that's what world war one is a lot of it, because now these nations decided they, they were landlocked. They were kind of bumping into each other, trying to colonize. Now it was time to square off. And most of these monarchs that were existing at the time, they were all descendants of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, which was interesting. They were all related, most of yeah. them. Yeah, back but when they if did you that. go yeah. exactly, and a good movie to watch is watch Thirty Seven Days. It's I think it was put on by BBC, and it kind of shows you how World War One breaks out, the political wrangling that went on behind the scenes, and how crazy it was. But here's what I want to make worthy of or, or really pull from World War One. World War One is going to be also the signal that we're getting ready to shift from the time of the Gentile back to the time of the Jews. Mm. Yeah. Okay. 19 November, 1917, yeah. we're going to have what's called the Balfour declaration. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we're not there yet. We are not, we're not there yet, but we are getting there to this shift back well, so what happens? So you have the Balfour Declaration, and a lot of people are like, well, what is that? Well, on November 2nd, 1917, the Balfour Declaration basically gives Israel some of their land back that had belonged to them back in the time of the Romans, the time where they, when they had established, okay, when they were an established, or excuse me, they were an established nation. And they had their temple and they had all these pieces and all these things in place. The temple was destroyed in, in most scholars say it's 70 AD, some are 68 AD, but most of them agree that it was around 70 AD in August, the beginning of August, like August 5th, to August 10th, right in there. So since then, the nation of Israel had been broken down by the Romans and then they were scattered and the last Jewish rebellion will be put down in 136, which we talked about was a significant end of the first age of the church. Well, now... In the seventh age of the church, we are seeing this land being given back to Israel. Now, 
a lot, not a lot of people moved back into that area. Right. Still unstable, but the Ottoman Empire, who had been in control of this for a good while, now it is broken down. Okay. And that Ottoman Empire is destroyed by the British and now and and allied forces, I should say. But Britain takes that land and gives it back to Israel. And it was a promise because it was Jewish banker that had helped bankroll the allies, especially France and Britain in world war one. And that was the guarantee that they would give them that back. So this happens. Well, obviously a lot of Israelites don't move back into that land. And so then we have the roaring twenties. I want to jump into those obviously in November 11, 1918 is the end of world war one. We have all these political, the political destruction of all these monarchies. And now all of a sudden political systems start taking over. If you go back and read the history, and if you can talk to somebody who was alive back then, which obviously is becoming a lot more rare because that generation has basically died off now, most of them, communism was a big deal. And there was this huge, that's called the Red Scare. Yeah. The communist scare. I mean, it's why the FBI formed <laughs> like yeah. it did. It became what it did is because they were trying to distinguish Americans who was communist and who wasn't and all this communist stuff. And so there was this, what was happening is, is political systems. What that was a signal of the political systems had taken over. We already had democracy and capitalism. Now we have communism taking, and these are taking over. You'll have fascism rise up in Europe in the 1930s, another political system. Mm -hmm. And so, and not monarchies here. So what happens is, is in this little 20 year time period before world war two really kicks off from the end of world war one is that these political systems are going to start rising up and becoming stronger and stronger. Well, just like the monarchs of old, they clash and now world war two happens. Well, part one of the political systems, fascism wants to rid itself of certain races and types of peoples and groups. And it's not just, Jews they want to rid the world of, but it's also other groups, but that becomes the predominant focus. And of course, the Nazis and them trying to destroy all the Jewish people that they could and round them up in the concentration camps, the Holocaust. You can read about that. I'm not going to get too deep into that. But what eventually happens is World War II is fought. And really the start of World War II is July 7th, 1937, when Japan invades China, known as the Marco Polo Bridge Incident. There had been a buildup there from the early 1930s between Japan and China, but this incident is really the unofficial start of it. The official start is obviously going to be September 1st, 1939, when Germany invades Poland after there had been an ultimatum to stay out of Poland. But, but there had been a compromise that they could have certain other lands. And obviously, they invade Poland. Two days later, World War II officially begins because Britain and France declare war on Germany for invading Poland. So now, World War II, we go through the whole process of World War II. You guys know that VE Day is May 8, 1945, and VJ Day is August 15, 1945. You can study World War II if you want to. But here's the thing. This kind of leaves a vacuum in leadership. 
you know, we have all these, we had all these conferences that would happen at the end of World War II between the United States, Soviet Union, and Britain, trying to figure out how they were going to settle all this. What's interesting is if you go back to the end of World War I and how that was settled, the only country that's involved in both of these is Britain. Hmm. United States and Soviet Union was not involved at any large degree. I mean, the United States was there to represent the United States. Woodrow Wilson came and went over there himself, but really had no impact at the end of World War I on really what went on there because the United States had not been in the war much. This time, political systems took over at the very end, and you had Britain with its parliamental monarchy. You had the United States, total capitalism, and you had communism, of the Soviet union that was going to decide what the world was going to look like. And, and so that is a major shift. So now we have that shift. Also, we have new dominant world powers between the United States, Soviet union, and and you have great Britain on the side of the United States. Obviously we're going to get all kinds of things that are, that are formulated. We're going to have alliances kingdoms basically we're going to have all these alliances that are formed that we still have today yep so that's that's one thing to to realize that that does impact us today because these alliances that were formed at the end of world war ii between democracies and all the different um all the different countries that would basically group up to defend themselves against communism communism would collect their countries and and do the same thing these are these are like just two big kingdoms is really what this is. And and you can see and, that because recently the news about NATO. Exactly. That. NATO is a those big part are, of that. Yeah, they're those are still exist today. That came out it, of World it, War II. Exactly. And you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis will be the culmination of a lot of that of them going head to head almost to the brink of nuclear war. If you go back and you, again, go watch the movie 13 days, they give a pretty good depiction of what really happened there. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't want to read it and study it, you just want a quick glance of it. That's a good way. That's a good way to learn it. But what also happens at the end of world war two is that, and I, I find this interesting and I'm not sure FDR would have done this, but I find it interesting how Harry Truman became the vice president. Because he was not the VP the term before. The guy that was FDR's VP from 1941 to 1945 was removed. And Harry S. Truman at the last minute was put in his place through some political wrangling. And now it's Roosevelt Truman. And then what happens is Roosevelt doesn't live very long after he is inaugurated. We basically have a newcomer on the scene. That is, you know, and in essence, unelected, that is going to make two of the biggest decisions in the history of the world, at least in the modern history. Mm -hmm. Number one, he's going to be the one that decides to drop the atomic bomb. Yep. Man. Number two, he on May, and this is important, on May. 14th, 1948, Harry Truman will sign the document that will make Israel become a nation and get 
give them a provisional government. A lot of these of the Jewish people fled after they were released from these concentration camps. Some of them, a lot of them, were taken to different areas. There, you can like there was a there's a movie out there called The Windermere Children, and and you can kind of get a sense of what was going on. Uh, for a lot of the people that survived these concentration camps, especially these children who become very prominent in all this. But they're going to be spread out, and most of them will flee to one of three places. They'll go to the United States to get away from the, Europe, the tyranny in Europe. They'll go to Great Britain because Britain was much more friendly for a Jewish population than the other countries in Europe. Or they will flee to Israel. Okay, so here's something else interesting. In 19, January 25th, 1949, there will be a permanent government elected in Israel. And then on July 5th, 1950, there's going to be this thing called the law of return. And basically, any Jewish person can return to Israel and automatically be a citizen of Israel. And a lot of these people that had been in these concentration camps, refugees, you name it, they will flee to Israel because they are automatically granted citizenship. They don't have to. A lot of them are still trying to become citizens in the United States and Britain and some of these other European countries and couldn't. Well, they could return here and do so. And this starts the formation of Israel again. So that is very significant in the seventh age of the church. And as time goes on, we get June 5th through June 10th of 1967. Israel is going to miraculously win That's an awesome story. a standoff, basically, what's going to be considered a war. And through this, they are going to completely retake the rest of Jerusalem. The old part of Jerusalem now militarily is in their hands. There's going to be more chaos and more war over this. And finally, there's going to be a peace settlement in August 7th, 1970. And that is going to politically help secure that part of uh, basically the rest of Jerusalem for Israel. They're the world's just simply going to have to accept it. You can go back and read about that. It's not, that is not that well known, but I have read enough about it that it did help do that. And then of course there'd be some more war and all this other stuff. And there'd still be this, this whole fighting between the Palestinians and Jewish people in the 1970s. And some of that goes off and on even now and through today. Oh yeah. yeah. But, but Israel now finally had their entire, basically their entire nation back. It wasn't exactly like it was, but now they have that. The only thing they don't have now is the temple. So that is significant. And that is a part of the seventh age of the church. Yeah. So, so we need to, you know, we, we got to take that part into consideration. Here's another thing. We're going to see the message of the gospel spread quickly with all the advent of technology. We're going to see the rise of guys like, uh, Billy Graham crusades. Yeah. Dr. Bill Bright campus crusade for Christ. It's going to be the largest parachurch in the world and really the largest outreach ministry ever. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to see those things come about after world war two. And I find it interesting 
You have the Jesus revolution. Those of you that went out there and watched the Jesus revolution film, that's going to come out of all this in the 19 late sixties and early seventies. So we're going to see all that. You're going to see all these, you got all these pseudo wars that happen between political systems and you're going to see technology just continue to expand, expand, expand. Here is significant thing about this church of Laodicea is that we're going to see the saturation of technology that will completely control our lives. We we're see that there we're and we're there. there. I mean, we're, we're the living product of this. Yep. Yep. And I mean, not that the war of the spirit and the flesh hadn't always been there, but how easy is it now to just fulfill any type of pleasure that a person wants to on the snap of a finger? Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't even give it a second thought. And we're, we're in such a stage of, li- or of, of advancement of technology and social thinking that we basically, we justify living according to the flesh like it's A-OK. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's easy to do. And so. And, you know, when, when let's stop right there for a second. You know, you talk about how the spread of technology and, and the growth of technology has has captured the lives of almost every person now in the world. And that's representative of the seventh age control. Because, I mean, as you said that, I was just thinking, my wife and I talk about this sometimes as well. You know, let's just say an EMP blows over, you know, two or three of them well-placed above, you know, the, the in the atmosphere over the United States will wipe out the entire electric grid and you're going to lose power, everything, cars, everything. And if you stop and think about that, you know, some people, oh, okay, you know, the power is going to go out. That's going to suck. But, you know, it's not like, oh, a lightning storm knocked the power out. You know, we see news reports, you know, the power's been out for 10 days now, you know, before they yeah. get everything back on. You're talking about millions upon hundreds of millions of people living in cities in these high-rise condominiums that are totally dependent on air conditioning and heating and water and all that, all that's gone. I mean, if you're living on the 37th floor, you're walking all the way downstairs and hauling water from the river back upstairs in a hot, hot, hot building. I mean, you know, this is not going to be a good time. No. (laughs) And it, I don't think people realize how quickly technology can be taken away and the ability to use it in the way that it's powered. It's not, you know, think about your phone. You got to charge it all the time. Right. Think about, I mean, think about these computers, you and I talking on here. It depends on us being able to plug this into a wall and connecting cords and for there to be electrical power to do that yeah and you know people say well i got a gas generator yeah okay the the best report that i heard concerning an emp blackout like we were talking about it's not going to be a matter of days you're talking six to seven years before they're going to be able to get the grid back up i mean you're not talking about losing your water all that you know they're how many wells do we have in the cities? <laughs> you <know>? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and they're, they're, you know, 
you can't, I can't dig a well on my property because no. we're required to have city water. You know, I mean, just think about it. Everything we've become dependent on is going to be turned off. Everything. There's no trucks running because they can't get gas because there's no electricity to pump gas, you know, nope. to deliver food and things like that. It is not going to be pleasant. It's going to go total anarchy, 100% anarchy. And uh, that's that's what we're looking forward to because we've come, as you said, totally dependent upon yes. technology. And that could, you know, and that will be that, you know, that could be an end result of all of this at some point. And I don't know what that point is. And, and obviously that, that could happen. One of the things that I, I want to, I want to point out here though, is that this last age of the church is, is significant in that the God, the message of the gospel has been spread okay and but there is still over three to four billion people on earth that have not yeah. heard it so that's almost half easy. the population yeah easy and, and it could be that. more than yeah. that yeah. that's about what is estimated i saw one figure said 3.2 billion i've seen some more than that but here's what i'm going to say about this ask yourself this question do we do we focus any more on really living in the power of the spirit or do we focus just simply on just giving people the message of the gospel? And have we taken the message of the gospel and turned it into a commodity? Yeah, that's what's happened. Exactly. And that has happened in a lot of places. I'm not saying everybody does done that, but I'm saying that that has been something that has came about as a result of us living what I call these fast food consumeristic lifestyles, because we want everything now. One of my second, my, my second manuscript of writing and eventually will be a book is called the idols within We're it is going to be talking about modern day idolatry and how it's really the idol of the week is what we can almost talk about. It, it really is. I mean, Things change so fast, and I and I, I teach and and I, lo I love to teach about uh, teach sociology. We talk about how inventions and technology affects culture. We get into a large, we have a project on that, and so and we dive in and I, and I tell students, I said, look at how quickly our cultures all keep changing now. And how our daily lives keep changing so fast because of the advent of technology. If you go back five years ago, 10 years ago, look at the technology then, look at now. Our oh, culture's yeah. changed. Yeah. We used to, if you dial back what we were talking about, that agrarian lifestyle, things changed really slowly. They might change over a 50-year period in minute ways. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. it feels like it changes every week. Yeah. The advent of technology is going so fast and we have built life in a way, and this is what's happened. We've almost built our lives in a way that we absolutely have zero need for God. Yeah. At least in our minds, we, we don't, we got YouTube to look up how to fix anything. Yeah. We got Amazon to order anything to our front door. 
how, why do I need to interact with people and deal with their messy lives like they did, that, like they were forced to 100, 200 years ago because you had to do that to get through and get by. And so as a result of that, the moral standard has completely degraded just in the way people relate to each other. Yeah. And it all boils down to this. You, I hear people talk about this sin or that sin. And, I, and I'll say, look, I don't even worry about that anymore. Sin is just a symptom. What it really boils down to is that people have lost their understanding for the need of God. And I believe that that is a major symbol of this church age. Matter of fact, if we read Revelation chapter three and we start, and I'm going to pull that up right here, and we start with verse 17 or excuse me, verse 15, it says, I know your deeds. You are neither caught hot or excuse me, cold nor hot. How I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, listen to this verse, because we all get into this lukewarm thing, but the next verse really lays it out. You say, I am rich. I have grown wealthy and need nothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Ouch. Okay. Now go and read the other six ages of the church according to Revelation and then read that. This is by far the most stringent, harshest and most condemning thing that is said by Jesus of any of the ages of the church. The only other thing would be the Jezebel spirit of the fourth age of the church that I would equate with it. Cause he's going to throw it on a bed of sickness because, but he gives them time to rid themselves of it and they don't. But this is almost like a total, it, the, the way it's written and the way it comes across, it's like a total depiction of everything. It's not just some people. It is like he's talking about the entire church. Well, isn't that true nowadays? I mean, yeah. if you compare our wealth, just compare the wealth of somebody that is considered low income and in poverty level and compare that to somebody who was middle class 150 years ago. It's the person nowadays is wealthier that is in poverty level yeah. than that person who would have been considered middle class back then. Yeah. That is the difference. And so this advent of technology has really changed the way we think and this under, and, and he wraps it up right there and need nothing. Okay. Nothing. We, we don't think we need anything, but the truth is, we we have we need God more now than ever, oh, and 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 if for those of you listening, Amen. Understand this: your need for God is so deep, and and no offense, but our sin, all of us, and this is all of us. This is this is me included. Mm -hmm. Our sin is so wretched and so pitiful, regardless of what age of the church you've been living in, or even before Jesus came, that. To not understand that you have a need for God means that if you don't feel that, then you are blinded from the truth. 
because I find it interesting. The very next thing in verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. What he is talking about, gold is truth. And he's telling you to buy truth from him because he is the only source of it. See, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And him saying that he is the truth, he's totally re-saying it right here, the same thing. And he's telling you that your faith needs to be refined by his truth and that you can only get real faith from him. You can only please God through your faith in him. There is zero other ways that we can do that. There is zero other ways that we can overcome our sin. And if you relate that back to verse 17, I think that becomes pretty clear. We don't just need God. He is absolute. He is more vital than your next breath. So God how- is the God of breath and the God of life. Amen. And we need to realize that in this age of the church because this age of the church unlike the other ones i've been talking about this is the one we're living in yeah absolutely and and as we get ready to wrap up share how this church age the seventh age of the church is going to end well interestingly enough i uh and i've studied eschatology a lot i've talked to a lot of people there's a lot of different ideas about some of the wrap up, but when we jump in and I'm going to, I'm going to sort of leave a little blank here (laughs) because I really want to include this in our next topic. When we talk about the break, when we give out the organization of these seven ages of the church, we're going to give a, almost like a, not a PowerPoint, but almost like a spreadsheet and an understanding of how, how well organized God is in all this. The main thing I'm going to say is this. God has given an organization to this, and he has layered a time period to it. Folks, this a, this this seven age of the church, the, the entire body of the age of the church is not forever. That's right. It is going to end. And the fact that Israel got their land back and their people moved back in and they established a government there should tell you that the, some of the prophecies of the Bible are coming true and already have. Yeah. And that should be a good signal that we need to have a sense of urgency to not only be teaching others about Christ, but that we need to live in the spirit and we need to submit to that leadership because we need God in every aspect of our lives. There is not a part of our lives that we don't. And in talking about the end of this age of the church, there are some, there's going to be some significant things that happen. I believe, and I know a lot of people are saying it's going to be tomorrow. It's going to, you know, it's going to be really quick in human years. I think we still got just a little bit of time left, maybe a little bit more than what people are predicting, but I'm going to say this. I don't think there's a lot. I really don't. I, I think we are crawling to the end. And when I give you in the next episode, when I, when I lay out that time and how organized this has become and how clearly organized it is, I think you're going to get a sense that, hey, something is going to happen around this, this time period. So do not delay. Yep. It will come like a thief in the night. You know, it's like the man who needed to be prepared for the thief to break in, but wasn't. 
make sure that you are prepared. And that is by receiving Jesus as your savior. That's it. And then submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit to lead your heart in whatever direction he calls. At the end of this, you know, you can live it up in this life if you want to. But what do you really have? 80 years, 70 years, 90 years, you know? Some people don't have tomorrow. Yeah. That is not even a pinprick on a timeline compared to eternity. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I I, I did a, a quick calculation one time. My mother died when I was 18 months old. Okay. Okay. And, you know, just using the, you know, one day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day, right? I, just using that as a calculation point, when I get to heaven, which could be at any time, but let's just say, you know, it's, it's you know, now, right? As far as her time reference is concerned, she's been gone like 10 minutes. Yep, <laughs> exactly. You know, here's 65 years later, you know, I'm still here. And then I get up, mom, you know, she'll know me. I'll know her and all that stuff. But, you know, like if, if something was to happen to your spouse or something like that, and then you died three years later, you know, she's still being introduced to Jesus when you get there type thing, you know? So it's like, Oh, you're here already. You know? So, you know, the time, time in heaven means nothing, you know, and, and cause it goes forever. Exactly. We have no concept of time there because we're there forever, but you can't get to that. But, and let's look at the flip side of that folks. If, you know, you can enjoy heaven forever and ever. And it's, you know, there's no concept of time. It's you're just there. Hell is the same way. You're there. You are there forever. And as Scott's been saying, the only opportunity you may have is to receive Jesus as your savior. That's it. That's the only way to heaven. He already, he gave us that scripture. That's the only way that you are going to get through this. And you know, like I said during that part of the conversation, some people don't have till tomorrow. They will die today, and they'll either die with Jesus or without Jesus. There's no other option. Nope. And, you know, I have been in churches where, you know, someone took found out later from the family that on the ride home, this person was saying, you know, I, I like that, but it really resonated. I think tonight I'm going to walk forward. And he was in a car accident and died. He didn't take that walk. He did not accept Jesus as a savior because he was going to wait till tonight. Tonight never came for them. There are people listening to us right now. Tomorrow won't be there for you. Who's it going to be? We don't know. We have no clue. But if you don't Take this opportunity. Scott has led up to this opportunity, so I'm going to jump all over because I'm an evangelist at heart. Pray this prayer with me right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, I need Jesus in my heart. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Take over my life. Create in me this new man that that your word talks about, one that loves God, one that loves you. Forgive me of my sins, all of them, every single, even ones I don't even remember. Wash me clean. Give me your life that I may be with you forever. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you pray that prayer, you know, email me at brotherbob at ftfm.org because we want to rejoice with you. Amen. And if you don't have your own Bible, I'll send you one absolutely free. Post pay. I'll pay the postage on it. 
just to get it into your hands, but this is continental United States only. You know, just reach out, let me know, and we'll put one in the mail to you. Praise God. Scott, it's been so interesting as usual. If someone has a question or would like more information or possibly want to reach out to you for an interview like this, how can they do that? How can someone get in touch with you? Um, well, first of all, you can just go to my email, GCC God Centered Concept 2038 at gmail.com. And that 2038 should be a good little signal about what we're going to talk about next time. <laughs> I was always wondering what that was for. <laughs> we're, the next episode is going to be about that. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Amen. Amen. Praise God. You're going to, oh. you're going to know what thin mission is after this next episode. And you guys are going to know what 2038 represents. Amen. I'll put a link to all this in the show notes below folks. There's no doubt we're living and what Jesus and historical Christian scholars have called the end times. I and mean, we are working our way through each of the church ages in order to give you a more thorough understanding of how all this fits into what we're witnessing right now all around us. And Scott has a goal of launching this series on a larger scale than just talking on a podcast. He yeah. wants to reach churches and organizations with this curriculum that will change their churches from simple institutions into a movement. Amen. He's also a podcaster, has a truly great podcast called The God-Centered Concept as well. You really need to listen and subscribe to this podcast. Amen. He's also published a journal called God-Centered Concept Journal, Making God's Word by Ways. I urge you to drop down the show notes, click the links right there, order his book, be sure to subscribe to his podcast. Scott, I want to thank you again for taking the time to come back on the program, sharing all about the seventh age of the church as well as, well, age one through six previously too. Amen. I do appreciate your time, brother. Are you there? Um, I'm here now. There we go. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Okay. <laughs> See, the devil's trying to interrupt that communications flow, folks. That's technology <laughs> for you. See, that's a good example right there. There yeah. we go. Praise God. Amen. Folks, that's we just need a little spiritual juice right now. That's it. That's all the time we have for today. For Scott Wright, myself, this pastor by everybody. Be blessed. You have been listening to Revelation Warning with Pastor Robert Thibodeau and his guest expert on Bible prophecy as it relates to current events. This podcast is not designed to invoke fear, but concern. Help us to make everyone aware that the soon return of Jesus is close at hand by clicking the like, subscribe, and then share buttons below. Share this episode with your loved ones, friends, and coworkers. For more information on our ministry, please visit podcasterforchrist.com. And be sure to come back next week for another episode of Revelation Warning.